Imagine if the invitation had come by text. Hey, Mo, what you doing this Saturday? I'm throwing a party at our regular spot. Bring your bro and his kids and anyone else from the old gang that wants to come. Barbecue, probably. Bring some steaks. So Moses texts back, new phone, who dis? <laughs> oh yeah, this is God. The book of Exodus, chapter 24, in the Heichmann Experimental Translation. From a slightly more accurate version, then God said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the high priest and his family, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under God's feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Barbecue. Yahweh said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. It's an old story, but it's central to the identity of the ancient Hebrew people and their modern spiritual descendants of which we are a part. What happens on the mountain? Two things. One, God shows up. In this version of the story, God is physically or at least visibly present. I can't tell you how that worked exactly, or if this is mostly a metaphor. But the point is, God was somehow truly, really, verifiably there. On the mountain, God shows up. And two, that encounter with God leaves behind a new or renewed vision of how we should live. God's presence translates to ethics. In the book of Exodus, that meant tablets of stone, the Torah law and commandments, a system of instructions for the shared life of God's people. In the Gospel of Matthew, that meant a collection of practical, straightforward teachings from Jesus. Over the next two months, we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 5, which is the first of three chapters known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We might come back after Lent and Easter to do chapters 6 and 7. Um, I'm not sure yet. Two months, we'll start there and see where things are. The Sermon on the Mount contains some of the most famous sayings of Jesus. The Lord's Prayer. Love your enemies. No one can serve both God and money. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. And of course, the golden rule. Those are some pretty inspiring words. And we typically treat them individually, like Proverbs or the wisdom sayings of Confucius or inspirational quotes from a daily calendar. And there is a lot of value in looking at these pieces individually. The golden rule is a good thing to consider. And mostly that's how this series is going to go. We have seven different speakers over the next eight weeks. But as we take this kind of piecemeal approach, let's not forget that Jesus, or at least his editors, put all of these teachings into one single sermon, one message from a particular time and place. Somehow all of these are meant to hold together with some common themes and a singular vision. So that's the main question for today. What is the purpose and vision of the Sermon on the Mount? Because the book of Matthew was put together with great intention and skill, you literature teachers will be glad to see that the theme begins with the setting. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to speak and taught them, saying, this seem familiar? A leader of a large, rather unorganized group of followers goes up on a mountain, sits down with his officers, and talks about, here's how we're going to live together. What happens on the mountain? God is present, and God's presence reveals the right way to live. This scene mirrors the Exodus story, which is hopefully not, to, not surprising to most of you now that I've been jabbering on and on about this for about six and a half years here. The emphasis of that story from Exodus 24 is on who gets close to God. The masses, the people, they stay far away at the bottom of the hill. Representatives are chosen to go up to get closer, the 70 elders. Those 70 were the judges in their society, the heads of the clans. They had the power, they were wealthy, they were male. Now the Exodus story gives multiple accounts, with most suggesting that not even these 70 elders go all the way to the top. That was reserved just for the high priests, Aaron and his two sons. And then Moses went on alone into the actual presence of God, or as close as he dared. By the Old Testament narratives, that hierarchy was God-ordained for the good of the people, for the maintaining of order and justice. This hierarchy was then mirrored in the, in the ordering of the, Hebrew, of the Hebrew camp around the tabernacle, and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. The presence of God was the pinnacle, it was, and there was a carefully managed system of rituals and sacrifices. If you wanted to get to God, there were hoops you had to jump through, there were fees you had to pay, there were commitments you had to make. And those legal structures just happened to benefit the wealthy and the powerful and the priestly along the way. So this Jerusalem temple world, that was the world Jesus was born into, with very clearly defined social hierarchies. Everyone knew their place, not just religiously, but politically, economically, and socially, and it could be broken down into much greater detail than this. So that's Jesus' world. Does anyone know, in Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus was born and moves back to Nazareth after this wise men story, when Jesus is grown up in Matthew's Gospel, what's the first story of Jesus' adult life? Who does he run into first? Anybody? Yeah, there's up there. That's John the Baptist. This wild man, this self-styled prophet, out in the wilderness by the Jordan River, preaching a coming revolution and inviting people into the water. I like how Richard Rohr says it in his talks on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to listen to Richard Rohr for a second. Do you, you know, we've grown up with this imagery of John the Baptist going out shouting in the wilderness and bringing crowds of people out there to the Jordan River and pouring water over them for the forgiveness of sin. Do you realize what that's saying? We have got in Jerusalem an entirely watertight system for getting into the temple and getting your sins forgiven and getting worthy and declaring who's in and who's out. We've replaced the, this economic system with a religious system of classes and worthiness. Right? And now we have this joker out in the desert, you know, just saying God is as available as water. Oh, my God, this has got to stop, you know. We got, no wonder they killed him, right? <laughs> Do you see why they killed him? God is as available as water. He's forgiving, baptizing for the forgiveness of sin. And now you get the significance of Jesus going and being baptized because what he's doing is accepting this new uh, world order. 
Got it? <laughs> this new world order say, yeah, God is as available as water in the river. So that's what happens in Matthew chapter 3. In chapter 4 is the temptation of Christ. Jesus has a vision of the devil showing him all the power of the world as it is. Economic power, political power, and religious power. The Temple Mountain again. And Jesus rejects all of it. Instead, Jesus left Jerusalem, left the capital region, and went back home, back to the back country, blue-collar Galilee. And there he called disciples, followers, common fishermen. And his fame as a teacher and a healer spread through the region. And Matthew says, they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, possessed by demons, suffering from epilepsy, those who were paralyzed. So there's this great crowd of followers, nobody special, mostly outcasts, even Gentiles. And then comes chapter 5, and Jesus brings his people, these people, to the mountain. And on the mountain, God shows up and teaches people how to live. And who's with God on the mountain this time? Jesus taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor, the grieving, the gentle, those who show mercy. There is no barrier keeping those people from God. There aren't any go-betweens. God's presence is not locked away in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. God is here on this mountain, already present, with the ones on the bottom. On this mountain, the hierarchy is turned upside down. God is already with those who are following Jesus, the lower classes, the outcasts. Blessed are the poor, the tokas, literally the ones who crouch or cower, the lowest ones. While I lived in Vancouver, my youth group took part in an urban mission adventure, it was called. We spent a couple of days exploring what life might be like for those living in poverty in Vancouver's downtown east side. Part of the experience was walking the few blocks between the dirty streets of the downtown east side and Vancouver's gleaming business district. We were invited to go to Robson Street, which is known for its expensive shops, and we were invited to simply sit there on the sidewalk for an hour. We weren't panhandling or asking for anyone or trying to get any attention. We were just sitting and paying attention to what it felt like to be sitting there, in the, sitting there while the world moved busily around us and over us. I didn't have any particularly memorable experiences. Um, some of the youth had people ask them, what are they doing? Um, others had people offer them food. I just remember the physical experience of being that low, of sitting there on the ground in a world that, well, it felt like everything was just going on up there. I was literally beneath everyone. It felt like all the important things were, were moving, moving up. They were hurrying, they were climbing. I didn't matter. I was out of it, irrelevant. So much of our world worships at the altar of upward mobility, higher education, investing and increasing profits, career advancement, self-improvement, onward and upward. But wait, Jesus says, there's a blessing down here with the ones who are crouched and cowered. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, that's a challenge. Why do we chase and climb and strive to get to the top when God is already present? on the bottom? How can we look down on those poor folks beneath us? How can we feel okay about stepping on their backs, cutting their funding to lift ourselves up and balance our budgets? How can we do that if God is there with them? As Richard Rohr said, it's no wonder they killed Jesus. 
those at the top were totally invested in the system that restricted access to God's blessing. And here Jesus is presenting a totally different worldview, a new mountain challenging the temple mountain. You don't need that old way of thinking, that old way of treating people. In fact, Jesus says later on in the book of Matthew, you can tell that mountain to throw itself into the sea. If you have faith, God is already as close as a prayer. You don't need any temple because the poor are already blessed. I don't think that Jesus is glorifying the lives of the lowly ones or minimizing their suffering. I don't think he would have glossed over the statistics that Rick read earlier or say that, well, that's okay because God's with them and so they're, they're happy anyway. Instead, he's calling for a new world order that recognizes the presence of God at the bottom just as much, if not more than, at the top. From Richard Rohr again. Such a new world order is so foundationally different, so transformative of perspective, that mere education or intellectual assent is inadequate for even preliminary understanding. It demands what becomes Jesus' next favorite theme, conversion, a complete turnaround of worldview. Conversion is not a learning as much as it is an unlearning. One will not, of course, turn away from what seems like the only game in town, political, economic, or religious, unless one has glimpsed a more attractive alternative. Jesus is a living parable, an audiovisual icon that is the it of that more attractive alternative. We cannot even imagine it, much less imitate it, unless we see one human being do it first. Jesus has forever changed human imagination. There is good news to counter the deadening bad news, but one first has to be turned away from the conventional way of seeing. The most unsettling of his alternative wisdom, and perhaps the most consistent, is that the outcast is in the head start position, precisely because he or she has been excluded from the false sacred system. Jesus thus begins by a most incredible statement, the poor are the blessed ones. Life has already freed them from the lie that the rest of us cannot see. If the system is a mess, those outside of it are at a significant advantage. Imagine that. What if all this stuff that so many of us live for, the security, the success, the status, the influence, what if all of that is not only not bringing us what it promises, but what if it's actually keeping us from seeing and understanding the true meaning of life? What would it look like to live in search of that deeper reality, the kingdom of heaven, as it's called in Matthew's gospel? That's the theme and vision of the Sermon on the Mount. When we recognize the presence of God as existing outside the present world order, even turning the whole thing upside down, then that conversion will lead to a very different ethic. Not just personally, but socially and religiously and economically and politically. The whole thing must shift. An invitation to move to a whole new way of seeing and then behaving. I hope we can keep this holistic vision in mind as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Our tendency, the pattern throughout the history of the church ever since these teachings were given, is to focus on the individual teachings. But when we try to understand them one at a time, they often don't seem like they're working. So we set them aside, or we spiritualize them. For example, later on in chapter 5, in verse 42, Jesus says this, Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. 
confession time, as your pastor, in your name, I blatantly disregard this verse at least once or twice a month. People call the church or stop by the office to ask for things quite often. Some of them we see regularly. Most of the time it's just one-offs. People who seem to be Googling churches or, or driving around stopping wherever they see a church that has a car in the parking lot. They all have a story. They all have a reason why they need some help. They have a family that needs food and shelter. They have some justification for why I should give to them or loan them some money. Almost always, I lie to them. Oh, I, I offer to give what help we have. We have food prepared in the freezer, in the pantry. Many of you give to that, and it's really good to have something to offer. Sometimes we give them gift cards for Superstore that they can use for food or gas or diapers or whatever. We have about $250 in our budget for those every year. So we try to make that last and spread that out across everyone who comes throughout the whole year. But most of the time, and that's, that's a drop in the bucket. I can't come close to giving them what they were hoping for. And so I say something like, well, that's all we have to offer. We have a limited budget. We can't help everyone that comes. I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do for you. Which is a straight out lie. There's plenty more that we could do. I mean, we have $250 in our budget, but we could easily do more if we chose. I could easily do more. Even beyond the financial stuff, I could actually demonstrate that I give a crap about them. I could offer to give them some genuine attention instead of just standing there kind of awkwardly, well, here, have some freezer stuff, and can you go away now? Or I could actually do what Jesus says and give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Instead, I directly disobey Jesus, and I turn them away with money in my pocket. And I justify it, telling myself that, well, we do have limited resources as a church. We literally can't give to everyone who asks. If we did, well, you know, they would come back next week asking for more, and the next, and then they would bring a friend with them, and word would get out, get out and soon we'd have a lineup. People here every day. Then we really would run a budget shortage. I mean, we're not set up to feed all the hungry people in Saskatoon. That's not what our purpose is as a church, right? We don't want to be taken advantage of. That's not good, right? I mean, if we really followed what Jesus said, we, we'd have to give everything to everyone. Soon we would be the ones that are begging and borrowing. And so we just set that commandment aside, try to forget about it because, well, what else are we supposed to do? Actually believe and follow? I suspect some of you have similar arguments in your head whenever you see a panhandler on the streets. I don't know what to do with that. I'm not telling you what you should do when you see a panhandler. I just muddle through, try to offer what help I think is reasonable, and generally hope that I'm not the one in the office when people stop in to ask for help. I think part of the reason that I get stuck here is that I'm so immersed in the old way of seeing. I'm concerned about budgets and sustainability and what might happen to me if I'm too generous, because that's how I've been taught to think in a world that's obsessed with that kind of thing. I'm so caught up in the business as usual that I can't see any other way. I can't imagine that God might be doing something more. The invitation of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not pretending this is easy, the invitation is to throw that whole mountain into the sea and instead look through Jesus' upside-down worldview. Blessed are the poor. God is with them. How might I respond differently if I focused not on the set of problems that limit my generosity, but instead saw truly the, the image of God in this one person right in front of me?
Part of the issue is my lack of imagination. Part is my inability to trust that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Beyond that, I don't know. I have helpfully assigned this text to our new interim pastor to preach about in February. So <laughs> hopefully Eileen has all the answers. One more word from Richard Rohr. But I think Jesus intended, and we'll see this when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, he intended us to take the low road. He intended us to operate from the minority position, from the position of the immoral minority, much more the moral majority. When you're in the moral majority, you always lose the truth because you got you got to uh, uh, protect your position and your your good appearance and your good image. And as long as the church was was underground in some sense, operated from a minority position, we had greater access to the truth, and greater access to the gospel, and greater access to Jesus. And that's the call in every age, that we in our time have to find our way to disestablish ourselves, to identify with our powerlessness instead of our power. Unless we understand that, the Sermon on the Mount tomorrow isn't going to make any sense. No sense whatsoever. You've got to be convinced of that ahead of time, that it's calling us to the place of powerlessness and disestablishment and non-security and essential insecurity because that holds you close to longing and thirsting for the truth. As soon as you're comfortable, you don't want the truth. That's trouble. I like being comfortable. Do we want the truth? I guess we'll have to stay tuned to find out. God of the lowly, open our eyes to see you with those on the bottom. God who gave up power, give us the courage and imagination to follow. God of love, meet us where we are and convert us slowly, steadily, rapidly. Transform us with your spirit. Amen.